I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. The Telegraph. The Telegraph. Podcasts. Hi there, podcast fans. I'm Tom Gibbs. Welcome to Telegraph Audio Football Club. It's a big day for Manchester City. The Champions League and legal proceedings against governing bodies will examine the CAS verdict and what it all means. In North London, Mourinho's Tottenham got the better of Arteta's Arsenal. Did Spurs deserve their win? And how do Arsenal fix their permanently shoddy defence? There's sudden intrigue at the bottom of the table on a brilliant weekend for those sides threatened with relegation, but we say goodbye to Norwich, confirming the most inevitable news to come out of Norfolk since the revival of Alan Partridge. Plus, the Sheffield United miracle, why Carlo Ancelotti needs more time, memories of Jack Charlton, and the most dramatic relegation avoidance acts ever. Let's take you now into our series of remote audio recording facilities where I'm joined, first of all, by Matt Law. How are you, Matt? Morning. All good, thank you. Good. Into the swing of things now? Watching football remotely and reporting on it despite not being in the stadium? Yeah, I mean, most of the time I have been in the stadium. I've done a a few press uh, post-match press conferences remotely and a colour piece yesterday on the North London Derby remotely. That's still a little bit weird, but I've, I've actually got very used to reporting now in stadiums with no fans in them. Are you you can't ever it? imagine it, yeah. Well, there are, I've got to say, and the public won't particularly like me for this, but I may as well be honest, there are advantages to be had uh, in that we get car parking now outside the ground. <laughs> You're in and out of the ground very fast, there's no hanging around. Uh, it's, very, it's a very efficient way of covering football, shall we say, without... Uh, spending an unnecessary amount of time travelling or hanging around. But Ideal. do not let that make you think for a minute that I am uh, not looking forward to today when crowds are back because it's 100% better with crowds. Football without fans is not nothing, but, you know, it's got it's, got its upsides. How are you, Mina? Hey, bestie. <laughs> <laughs> What's going on? We established that last week. Just wanted to make sure it's still there. Um, yeah, yeah, I'm good. I'm good. I'm looking forward to the day when, you know, fans can go back and we can all watch football without feeling like it's a little bit of a dread. Yes, I think that is something I'm experiencing. I'm enjoying it when I watch it, but I'm not finding it all that compelling a thing to put on because it's reminding me that things are still really weird and I would prefer to live my life 
uh, pretending that everything is okay, uh, certainly with what I'm consuming on television, which is why I'm absolutely chaining Sex and the City. That's my uh, preferred uh, <laughs> lockdown watch at the moment. Uh, how about you, JJ? What's going on with you? Oh, all the things. How are you, Tom? Oh, yeah, I'm okay. I mean, I've watched too much Sex and the City, and the fifth series is not the one, but uh, I'm, I'm assured it a- gets better for the last series. Are you a Samantha or a Charlotte? Oh, 100% Samantha. Any, anyone who says differently is... Uh, she's the standout character, without a doubt. Let's move... I'm hanging up. I am hanging up. <laughs> going. Let's move quickly, before we lose all of our listeners, onto the big news this morning as we record on Monday, which is the verdict on the Manchester City case from the Court of Arbitration for Sport. Uh, They have stated, the CAS, that Manchester City did not disguise equity funding as sponsorship contributions, but did fail to cooperate with the UEFA authorities. But that means that their exclusion from participation in UEFA club competitions has been lifted, but the fine has been maintained, but reduced to 10 million euros. But effectively, they're back in the Champions League. It's it's quite surprising news, Mina. Are you surprised by it? Is it CAS or CAS? Uh, well, I think you can say either. Right, okay. Um, am I surprised? A little. Part of me thought that, look, I, I get that two years was a little bit too much, um, um, but I didn't think that they would go in, have this giant thing, you know, hanging over, and then she'd be like, okay, well, so now it's just 10 million euros, you know? I mean, in many ways, it's a good thing because we get to have Manchester City in the Champions League next year, but I do think I sort of don't understand financial fair play rules anymore. Like, I'm not entirely sure if there is if you can just act the way that you want to act or, or or UEFA just sends out a ruling and then whatever happens, CAS is going to overturn it. I don't know what to take seriously anymore, if I'm honest. And I don't even, I don't actually know the ins and outs anymore. It just doesn't make sense to me because there's something about, you know, the fact that these things happened five years ago. There's things about this is too much of an exaggeration when it comes to punishments. So I'm I'm shocked that initially they were handed such a harsh ban. I'm shocked that it's only been reduced to 10 million. No, no time served for outside of European competition. Let's just focus on that FFP aspect for a moment. Some people are saying this is the death knell for FFP, Matt. What do you think it means for the future of financial fair play, this ruling? Well, the immediate future of FFP was already slightly uncertain because obviously it's being relaxed for the next year in the wake of COVID. And as to what relaxed actually means in any case, um, I haven't read it all point by point point in terms of the relaxation. So maybe it is out there if if you read all the rules and regs, but I I got the impression anyway that that this year it would almost just be a case of clubs being able to put in as much money as they wanted um, and write it off against covering for the impact of COVID. and this obviously adds to that. I mean, there will be unhappy clubs out there. We know for a fact that there were clubs, and I don't think they've been named, but it's been made clear that there were clubs out there pushing for Manchester City to be um, punished in the harshest possible way. So you would imagine that those clubs will now potentially try and argue that uh, that they can kind of do, do as they please. Um, I mean, it's so hard to predict what will happen to FP. I don't think it will completely crumble. And I do think away from some of the higher profile disputes, which have of course included PSG as well, and I think AC Milan have been looked at in the past, but away from the higher profile stuff, I think there's there's still an acceptance within football that, that some sort of FFP is 
is needed and has done some good at, at various levels. Um, the problem, the problem has always been with FFP is that if you have clubs like Manchester City and Paris Saint-Germain where they have ownerships and owners who can clearly afford um, and Chelsea come into this as well because many people think that FFP was, was pretty much designed at one stage to try and stop Chelsea. Um, if you have an ownership and owners that can, can afford to pump massive amounts of money in and can afford year-on-year -year losses um, without it being to the detriment of the football club, there is an argument as to say, well, why shouldn't they be allowed to do that if they're willing to fund it? But obviously you have to have one rule for all and if you have that at a lower level, then it, it causes all kinds of problems. So... Look, it's very difficult to predict, but there'll clearly be people out there who, who use this a little bit of a test case as to how they then try and operate in the, in the years going forwards. It's difficult, isn't it? Because you've got a situation where even in the same league, you've got a team like Manchester City. And if you compare them to, say, Norwich, who I realise are not going to be in the league for too much longer, they're almost playing different sports. They may as well be, given the, the numbers involved in a team that's in the Champions League every year, a team with the funding of Manchester City compared to a team like Norwich, who just don't any, have anything like that resource. Um, but let's focus on City, JJ. Presumably the big implication for this is that Guardiola's position is now shored up for the long term. Yeah, it means that they um, can much better easily sell players moving to Man City. So when they uh, approach their top targets, they don't have to then pay them many more, many more pounds so that they can get them in the, uh, get them in the door without Champions League football. It also means they definitely will not have people like Kevin De Bruyne going missing, uh, you know, a year or two of, of football. It's pretty. I mean, it's obviously great for City and the players they can they can get in now because they need to do a little bit of work to to catch up with where Liverpool are. I, I don't think they're a million miles away, but there's clear places they need to improve, and they're going to have to do it with signings because they've got youth players coming through, but they're not quite. You know, although, although like players like Eric Garcia are doing well just now. They clearly need a bit of a step up because a lot of the older ones at the top of their squad age are, um, yeah, just need just need replaced. But this is the thing; it, it makes negotiation a lot easier with players. Even though you, I'm sure a lot of them are motivated by money, but the, if you want to build a successful team, you can't really sign players who are whose motivation is money. You want ones who want to win stuff, and the best players will want to win the Champions League. And so, why would you go to City if you are like it's you know it's like kind of juxtaposition where the the players they could sign without Champions League football. Um, are the ones that they just do not need to sign because the ones they want to sign are the ones who would only go somewhere to win the trophies that they can get. Yes, uh, you would expect a big comeback from City one way or another next year. And of course, they still could win the Champions League this year, so um, a good day for them. Let's move on to the weekend's football. It was the North London derby. Spurs beating Arsenal 2-1 at uh, White Hart Lane 2.0. Did you think Spurs deserved to win, Nina? Yeah, absolutely. I really did. Um I know that, you know, on the face of it, when you looked at the way the Arsenal played their football, they were better. Um, they obviously took command of the game. They had better possession. All statistics point to the fact that they were a better team. And I feel like Arteta got it completely right. The way that he blocked them, the way that he made life so difficult for them to try to play out from the back. But the thing with Mourinho is that he's really good at just identifying the weaknesses of your opponent and uh, identifying the strengths of his. And he knows very well that what he's really got is basically Son and Kane and very little much else. So it's just like, let's go for route one. They didn't know how to stop it. Long balls, no one can stop them. Um, they try to win it and they 
then you've got two against that defense. And the thing is, is when you know Arsenal have a bad defense, you're always willing to take a punt because you know that somewhere along the lines, they're going to make a mistake. And if it's not one, then it's going to be three. So why not have a go? And the fact is, is you could say he got lucky because like I said, I really think on a tactical level, Arteta got it so right. But... I think that he was also somebody who just I knows exactly where Arsenal mess up. And that's basically what he continued to target with players like Kane and Son. And it worked out for him. And he remains a guy who he, many people still don't think is a great coach. But when it comes to big matches, he still does make the difference. Yeah, certainly got them over the line on Sunday. What do you make of the defence, JJ? Mustafi, Kalasinac, Luis, not having a wonderful time at the moment. Do you think there is a workable defence in there somehow? Um, how many of those players do you think they need to get rid of potentially? Or, or do you think you could you know, build around maybe one or two of those? No, uh, all with, of them. With some new faces around them. You think they all need to go? All of them, my What about God. you, JJ? Oh, my God. <laughs> uh, I think that you can see that there's, um, there's, there's good coaching going on at Arsenal just now. And you can see it in Mustafi, who for about 60 minutes of the game was doing things quite well. Like his his body positioning was good when he's defending. He was just doing all the right things he should be doing. However, uh, his normal flaws are that he goes to ground quite early and lets strikers get past him. He does silly little errors that um, have been part of his game forever, like a stupid pass or... or God, that one when Kane hit the post, like he, he, it yes. was like he pressed yeah. the slide tackle button too early on the video. Well, game. that's, it that's really it. strange. Yeah, definitely. It, it is like that. And um, this is the thing, like when you get to the point where you're panicking in the middle of the game and you can't be coached through it every single minute and you don't remember all the things you've learned that week in training, that's when you revert to what you've known your entire life. And what Mustafi knows is doing ridiculous what, things. And falling yeah. every time that he was supposed to be training or was supposed to be defending against someone. And he's never in the right position. In Italy, you say that if you have to slide tackle anything, it means you are in the wrong position to start off with. Yeah, and I don't know if it's, he's always in the wrong position, but it's, it's more that like he, it's little things like simple defending bits. When you've got Kane running on the outside of you and you know you are as fast as him, you don't go to ground because you can hold him up to show the ball wide. Exactly. And it's diving in early. And that's the kind of thing that he's not been doing in recent weeks because it's clearly been coached out of him. But what I mean is that you revert to what you know best, what you you know your muscle memory almost, when it gets down to the scary parts of games, and that's what you saw with Mustafi. Kalasnach, another player who is probably he's all right. He looks like a big lad, right, and he's clearly quite um, hard to play against. Yet he does little things like that little pass that he played the wrong side of Louise to give away that um, the the goal that Sun scored. Kind of thing you can't really afford. David Luiz himself, you know, he's got a bit of a mistake in him all at any given time. And even um, at the, the start of the game, he got a pass to him and was caught flat-footed. Just a, another basic thing that you shouldn't do as a elite footballer, any footballer. We caught flat-footed and be able to turn and, and move it on. And so I'd imagine that well, they've got uh, this boy uh, Saliba coming in, who I've not seen enough of to tell you if he's any good or not. Um, but they definitely, I, I think Arteta wants to play a back four and to to play out the same way that kind of Man City do now, where you have a four that becomes a three in possession because they play with a diamond when they go, when they attack anyway. So it's the kind of what he wants to do. But I think he'd like to have uh, four defenders so that he can have another you know a specialist attacking player in a team, whether it's a midfielder or a striker for next season. And so if he can get if Salva's at the level required and there's anyone else that he can maybe get in, that might work. But then the defense takes time to coach to gel together so even just buying i mean you can, if you buy a van dyke sure enough you fix it straight away but uh they don't exist 
So yeah, not loads of them around, are they? No, exactly. And they, I, they, I mean, but there I are don't... some very good defenders out there with a good experience that can well, at least communicate. But I would go for Devry. Devry, he's going to be seventy, eighty million. You can't just buy that. They don't have the money. So, like, who else are you going to get? It's the thing. Their budget is going to be maximum probably about thirty million odd. So all the ones they would get would probably be too expensive for their age, cost far too much in wages, and do they have the motivation and the the mental characteristics that Arteta's trying to bring in? You this is the one thing something. that they need to save up for. So I don't care if he doesn't come next season, then save up for him when he comes next season. It's the one thing that will absolutely revolutionise them. They don't even need a whole set of new defenders. They need one guy who can tell them and communicate with them better at the back so that you don't have Colas and Andrew waiting and eating popcorn as he watches how his errors unfold. And then you don't have like, you know, players like Mustafa who's like, oh my God, he's gone past me. Fall now, fall, you know? Um, it, it's just look there are moments where they do well but when things go badly they all fall apart and I really feel like you just need one guy out there who at least has confidence in himself it's just such a gamble in the Premier League though isn't it because it's, you've seen this with Man City you buy players you buy defenders especially who look really really capable elsewhere and something about the way the game is here seems to just send them weird and that these errors creep into their game that the, presumably the scouts haven't seen in hours and hours of analysing them before they spend millions and millions of pounds on them. I think it's I think it's a really tough thing to... Uh, Van Dijk is such an unusual um, example in the Premier League of a defender who has just been more or less faultless all the way. It, it does seem to do something the weird. One they, the one they, they, won them, they messed up recently was... Um, they should have got Johnny Evans. I know Johnny Evans had a bad game yesterday, so it's a bad timing for this comment. But they were they were very close to signing Johnny Evans from West Brom, um, and it, it it felt like they almost backed off because of a bit of fan reaction. It was very negatively taken. Johnny Evans, someone like Johnny Evans, as a for a two three year or something would have actually been perfect for them. Well, steady, another option that steady, would have been experienced. Um... They, they got the wrong Chelsea centre-back, didn't they? Why didn't they get Cahill? Uh, yeah, I agree with that. The, the, the thing with like the Arsenal fans, um, I know a, a few who think Kieran Tierney isn't good enough because he doesn't have um, like skills. But he's exactly the kind of mental character that they need in that, that team uh, who can take them to the level that they need to get to. And you have, like, uh, like Johnny Evans would have been a great signing because of what he brings. Uh, um, like his, you know, his, I keep talking about it, his mental characteristics. But he's not a very sexy signing. So you want someone that's got a good name and who looks like they're going to be able to play technical football and do all the bits and pieces. Arsenal can't... Again, same sort of thing with Man City had they not had Champions League football. If they're going to sign a great centre-back who takes them forward, they're kind of limited because Arteta's trying to build, so he needs to get buy someone who fits with the characteristics of the the team that he's trying to put towards. And he needs someone who's motivated. But why would you be motivated... If you're at a top club already, because you know the best players tend to be at top clubs, why would you then want to go to Arsenal, who aren't going to be in the Champions League, if you are that good? So they need to look for someone who's at somewhere like um, RB Leipzig or, or Salzburg, that sort of thing, who's not yet had the step up, because they, they at the moment they are not at the level they want to be. They need to get someone who is at the same level as them, who is good enough to develop into that. It's weird you bring up RB Leipzig because they have been looking at an RB Leipzig defender, Upamecano. Upamecano, yeah. They- yeah, they've been um, they've been looking at him for a long time now. A lot of people but, are looking at him. Yeah, the fear the fear being is that uh, they will either get outbid or that not qualifying for for I mean they may not qualify for Europe at all, let alone the Champions League. 
Yes, can I just make a point on why Manchester City and why Liverpool, for example, got it right? I just feel like a lot of the time, the the kind of defenders that people are targeting these days are not necessarily the defenders that you should start off with. I feel like if you have a bad defense, your first purchase should be a guy who's, you know, not the one who necessarily knows how to play out beautifully from the back. I think that should be his sidekick, the youngster that you believe in that he's going to help grow. I think you need to bring in sort of, you know, your your Sergio Ramos, if you will, your sort of like strong, powerful, authoritative, doesn't necessarily have to be very good on the ball, sort of your Giorgio Chiellini who's just willing to have a fight out there. And then that guarantees you a bit of an authority at the back. And then you put around him the players that know how to play football and a defensive midfielder who can knows when to track back and knows how to track runs and can also offer some communication. I think a lot of the time we go for players like... I'm Eric Laporte. I'm a huge fan of, always was a fan of. But he would have been even more spectacular if like, he had a Puyol next to him. That's how you see players like PK grow and Rafael Varane grow. It's because they had guys next to them who were always willing to shout. And that's how we build in other countries, or at least that's the way that I've been taught that you start off with, is you start off with sort of like, you know, the the warrior, whatever you like it. And then afterwards, you start playing all the players around him that understand how to treat with the, the treat the ball. But I think a lot of the time here, it's all about, okay, he can use his feet, so he must be absolutely amazing. You know, John Stones, let's bring him in. But that's not necessarily how you start off with these guys because when the panic button comes, you don't want a guy who knows how to use his feet. You want to know a guy who's willing to engage um, and stand his ground. And I think that's where you, that's the first turn into building a, a castle at the bank. Yes, several questions still to be answered about how Arsenal rebuild their defence. What about down at the bottom of the table? Norwich are gone as of this weekend after another massive defeat to West Ham. Um, but a weird game at Bournemouth, Matt. Um, it was sort of, it's a knockout style uh, football there in the second half. Um, have we reached the point in the season now where teams fighting for their lives start pulling off these strange results? No one, I don't think, had Bournemouth beating Leicester 4-1, especially after Leicester took the lead. It's an incredible weekend. I mean, so far, we haven't had Man United play yet, but so far we haven't had any of the top four win. And everyone at the bottom bar Norwich, who we're now discounting, won. Um, it was a, an incredible weekend. And all of a sudden, look, I, I think the bottom three as it is will be the three that go down. Obviously, Norwich are down, as we said. But I, I still think the other two, Villa and Bournemouth, or Bournemouth and Villa, whichever way around they end up, will, will be the ones that go down. But... We suddenly look at least like we've got a fight and a scrap come to life because before this weekend, uh, I think the only victories down the bottom were, were teams beating Norwich. Um, I don't think anyone else had won any other games. Um, Watford had beaten Watford had beaten Norwich, um, and that was pretty much it. Um, West Ham, of course, had beaten Chelsea. In fairness, but but all of a sudden there's a scrap that there looks like there's there's some intrigue down there, particularly with Watford and West Ham playing next, which which gives a bit of light to, to Bournemouth and Villa going forwards, even if they don't necessarily win the next game. So, yeah, I think it was the weekend that, that sparked that a little bit. I've never seen, I don't think I've ever seen anything like that, that Bournemouth game. I don't think I've seen a team leading, okay, only by one goal, but so comfortably with 63, 64 minutes gone to then absolutely not just shoot themselves in the foot, but just imploding. Like, you know, completely decapitate themselves. Yeah, I mean, it was just unbelievable. I mean, Schmeichel's goal kick, Schmeichel on the goal where Solanke somehow rolls it under his body, Soyuncu, absolute head gone. I mean, it was it was incredible. 
It's absolutely incredible. And it's, a, it's the first time we've seen Bournemouth It came from nowhere. Again. It just came from nowhere. There was, I, was, I was live blogging this game. You can see, like, um, I totally agree that I, I couldn't believe that the turnaround, that, I mean, that's a proper capitulation from, from Leicester. They, they fell apart. But then it's the weird things like that, the Schmeichel kick off, uh, hit, um, yeah, hitting Didi on the behind, yeah. And then, like, you can't account for stuff like that. But Bournemouth, like, there was a little little tactical change at, at half time that made a bit of a difference. I think the players really made a bigger difference. Like, like Gosling came off. Um, uh, he wasn't playing very well and, and Dan Juma came off as well he was absolutely hoarse during the whole game but um, Le- uh, Leicester went from so they were playing a, this 3-4-1-2 that Rodgers quite likes and it means you can get both Ihenacho and Vardy and the team together you use it a lot at Celtic but um, Ihenacho came off at half time and it changed the shape to more of a 3-5-2 so indeed he dropped to the little back so rather than having someone in the 10 slot they had someone in the 6 if that makes sense so you're, you're in, you know changing the, tri- the triangle so rather than a tip at the top it's at the bottom and uh, Bournemouth also changed from a 4-4-2 which they used most of the season to a 3-5-2 to try and adapt it and it makes um, sense when you're playing against two strikers to play three centre-backs because then you've got numerical advantage and they didn't have control of the midfield at all in the first half so having three midfielders in there suddenly meant that they they did. They had they were they were balanced, so they had a bit more about that. Then the mistakes come in, but they, you see the difference in how they were just playing. So it's not just changing the formation or the shape or whatever. Like the actual difference comes when you look at things like their passing accuracy went up by uh, quite a few points. It was something like sixty nine percent. It went up to seventy four. Um, the possession went up from thirty four to fifty three in the second half. Obviously, they'd have the extra man helped. But the big one for me is that they were suddenly winning all their tackles, like their duels. It's called in Optistats. So um, they. They won 34% of their duels in the first half. Leicester won 65% of theirs. Uh, and in the second half, Bournemouth were up to 54% of winning duels. So, I mean, it's, it's things like aerial battles, uh, 1v1s, 50-50s, that sort of thing. That's what Bournemouth suddenly were just stepping up. And that's not... I mean, Howe's not going like, come on, lads, get into them or anything like that. It's just the players came out onto the pitch and were had more about them, that they realised they had to do something. Making it doubly incredible as well was the fact they'd lost Ake. I mean... The, yeah, the minute, exactly. okay, he he stops Vardy scoring because Vardy was was going to score a second. He stops Vardy scoring. Leicester are well on top. Ake goes off, and you're just looking at it, thinking this could be anything now. This yeah, could be this three, could be like four, 10 nil some, yeah. To Leicester, and yeah. so again to pull back from that, I, mean, I I actually feel a bit. I shouldn't feel sorry for them because they're in a race with my club, but I feel a bit sorry for Bournemouth because their next game is Man City away. Um, Whereas obviously they'd have been hoping to take the momentum from this into a, a slightly easier fixture, probably. But maybe we're at that stage of the season where we're going to get some mad results. Maybe there's a couple of twists and turns to come. But I it's also coming. think there's something weird with Leicester not winning away from home since New Year's Day. Something's yeah. going on with Leicester. Something I've 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 been I was at Leicester uh, twice recently for the the Chelsea game. And for the the Chelsea FA Cup game, that is, when Chelsea were poor, really poor, and won, which tells you about Leicester. And then I was there for the Crystal Palace game, which Leicester actually won. But for the first half, they were abysmal, absolutely abysmal. Um, And then Palace fell apart when when Leicester got ahead. So something's happened at Leicester. I can't put my finger on it. I don't cover the club close enough to to know the ins and outs. But, But something's happened at Leicester. Something's gone wrong. I was talking about this last night with some of my, my friends, like trying to work out what's wrong with Leicester, and it, like, 
they don't have they've got a good squad but it's not they don't have amazing players on the bench to come off the first team's very strong but when they miss one player like Ricardo Pereira just without him suddenly their right side is nowhere near as strong without Chilwell I mean the backup is Christian Fuchs who is although Chilwell's been he, he terrible awful, uh, I mean he's Fuchs, good at start of the season yeah. he's Ch- Chilwell since recently. January has been appalling I agree, and uh, but then I think because they've also missed players like so they missed Ndidi for a lot of the season. Now Madison's out, but Madison's influence was even being uh, nullified by teams focusing on him in the same way that like teams like Palace. You know, if you kick Zaha, you don't have the you don't have your creator anymore because he's off the ball. If you kick Grealish, suddenly you can't create so many chances in open play. So they were doing that to Madison. So his um, influence in open play isn't actually that that much and when you miss those individual players and other teams know how to play against Leicester so early in the season they weren't sitting as deep against them as they are now because they you know they become like a a top four team very quickly in the season so teams are worried so they adjust how they set up against them so rather than try and take them on and play more balanced they, they approach it with more deeper so there's less space in behind for people like Vardy it neutralizes how they play and then if you manage to take Madison out of the game they can't create and that's just you know once they're sitting in the top four maybe they drop a little bit in level it's just little bits and pieces here and there. With a with a stronger bench, it'd be okay. But the problem now is that they've all of them are out of form, and it's uh, exactly the wrong time for that to happen. Yeah, it's been a faltering return for Leicester, but life in the relegation battle yet. We're interrupting this podcast to bring you news of another Telegraph show we think you might like. It's called Planet Normal, and it's hosted by me, Liam Halligan, and me, Alison Pearson. We're both Telegraph columnists who share the view that far too often those who shout the loudest on the telly just don't represent the views of normal people. So take a trip with us to Planet Normal. We're joined by some stellar guests, well-known voices from politics, business and the arts. All from different fields, but they have one thing in common. They're at the top of their game, but distinctly down to earth. The good news is I finally learnt what a podcast is and even how you subscribe to it. It's actually quite simple. Search for Planet Normal on your podcast app or click on the link in the show notes for this episode. You don't really know what a podcast is, do you? I am one. Look, I am one. Who needs to know what it is? I am one, okay? Shut up. Let's rattle through the rest of the Premier League now. We prematurely wrote off Sheffield United after the return to football, but they've been magnificent in the last few games, Mina. How did they beat Chelsea 3-0? Honestly, I think that what it is with Sheffield United is that they're a team for the momentum. I was really worried about them coming back because I think that they're a side that really need their home fans and they really do take a lot from that, pushes them on. Um, and a lot of that is because they're a hardworking team and they're a side that just, they need their momentum and then they, they commit a thousand percent to the cause at all stages. I haven't seen that since they've come back. You started seeing life in them a little bit, starting with the FA Cup, and you thought, okay, a little bit of them is coming back. I think this is where they went onto the pitch, realized that, you know, Chelsea may be obnoxiously good going forward but they do obviously have so many problems at the pack so again it's let's make it let's take advantage let's commit a thousand percent and just make it so difficult for Chelsea's defense and get them so engaged back there that they can't actually do anything with us and I think to play them you have to be at a hundred percent willing to run as much willing to to tackle as much willing to fight it out as much 
and they always had two players always there occupying the center backs and then they just made life easy because they used that as their springboard to keep going forward and 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 apply lots of pressure and Chelsea switched off because for Chelsea that's not the position they want to be in they don't want to be back then just defending they want to be actually showing you how well that they attack and it's the one area that Chelsea need to look at if they are to push forward next year and, and so on and so forth because we know that they have so many great players going forward I just think at the back when you are up against teams that are so committed and willing to engage you at the back then you don't have that much forward to counter it Counter it. Ollie, Ollie McBurney, is he the new Peter Crouch? I. No, he's not. Much, no. <laughs> much better than people give him credit for. I think I'm he's, he's sure much he better. I've watched him play a lot for Scotland and I can confirm he is not. I think he's decent. <laughs> I think he's not uh, bad. Come on, he's not he's bad. Decent. I think it's really, really. I was willing to write him off as some sort of cart horse just from sort of looking at him. And every. I mean, I've probably only seen Sheffield United live. Oh three times a season and watch them on the telly maybe five or six times but I'm always impressed by him I like him well the thing with McBurney right is he's a striker but he's not a goal scorer he's like a link player in the same way that um, this, is, this is weird to compare it but someone like like Jorginho at Chelsea the way he links the midfield and defence that's what McBurney essentially does for Sheffield United between midfield and and uh, whoever the this, this, this striker pair is. Because the way they attack is they overload wide areas, they tend to get two two wide players and an overlapping centre-back there. And that's what they did against Chelsea. And it's Pulisic and William were particularly guilty of not tracking their men. I think Reese James really struggled with the overloads, which is where Sheffield United got a lot of their, their joy from. But this is what McBurney is good at, is he gets the ball into feet, he's good at shielding it, and he can lay it off. But he's he, in front of goal, he's not very good. Like he can't, he can't play as a solo striker for Scotland, for example, because he isn't able to play on his own and do everything and, and provide link. But if he plays with someone next to him, then he can function quite well. So some of these players, they look quite good in the team they're in. But if you put them into another another team that doesn't function around the yeah, exact way they that. play, it doesn't work. Yeah. I, look, I like him. I like him. Well, I'm glad. That's nice. So <laughs> will, 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 will he be fantastic if you put like Mason Greenwood next to him? Uh, well, I don't know. At the moment. It, yeah. Anyone would be. Uh, okay. What about Wolves? I'm struggling to think of a more reliable team at the moment than Wolves. They looked very, very comfortable in their win at Everton. Um, after that, Carlo Ancelotti said that Everton's spirit was unacceptable. Is it too soon to judge his time there, Matt? Or um, are we beginning to think that it's not actually working out all that well for Ancelotti at Everton? No, I, I think that's incredibly harsh. Remember where they were when he came in. Uh, Everton were in the middle, midst of a relegation battle at one stage this season. They were, they were right down there. They were sort of bottom three territory. Um, and I always think it's unfair, particularly in a, a first, first part of a, a managerial reign, where you're almost, by saying that, you're almost judging Ancelotti against what he's already done. So he, he got into Everton and lifted them straight out of any relegation issues had them looking at the table, had people talking about can they make a run for Europe, and then it's since tailed away again. But they're obviously in no danger of going down and they're going to finish somewhere just below mid-table probably. So Ancelotti has actually gone in and done a very good job. The problem is, is that in terms of judging him, is that his very noticeably good work um, impacted at the start and now you end up judging him against that. Look, he hasn't had... Um, it's not his team. And I think it's very clear from a long time listening to him and watching him. I mean, some of his facial expressions, Ancelotti's got great facial expressions. And 
watching, it's just so clear he doesn't fancy a lot of those players. It's so clear he doesn't fancy Gilfie Sigurdsson. Yeah. It's so clear that he, well, he basically doesn't fancy the whole midfield, I think, yeah. which is a massive <laughs> problem for Everton. Um, um, and a few players have obviously surprised him, I think. I think Dominic Calvert-Lewin had surprised him. But again, it's showing now with Calvert-Lewin that you can't, and I love Calvert-Lewin, but you can't rely solely on him for consistently goals because at best he's a streaky striker goals-wise. So it's not his team. Um, the difficulty for Ancelotti is, as I do think has happened all across the leagues, virtually apart from Chelsea and Man United, is that Ancelotti will have been looking ahead as this summer being a big summer in terms of turning over that squad, um, buying and selling players. And he might not be able to do that now. And so it's now difficult and interesting at the same time to, to see what happens with that squad and whether he can turn it over. Because even if they have, let's say, 50 million in budget to spend and then whatever you can bring in through sales, how you sell a Sigurdsson and people like that now on the wages they'll, they'll be on, I don't know. If he had five years, he'd make them a good team. <laughs> Yeah, yeah so five that's what, that's years. But I also, I also think quite a lot of money. The thing is, is that like there's a reason why, and I know that it's it's harsh, but it, Ancelotti's always been described as a coach for the big teams, because on one level, um, although he's had success obviously with teams like Parma, we know that he can do it. He's one of the most intelligent coaches out there. But I do think that on a psychological level, he's not somebody who's going to stand around and motivate you the way that perhaps you know you'll get from um, other coaches who are used to working with smaller clubs and, and players who perhaps have uh, lower ambitions, let's say. I think that what he has is w when you watch Napoli and how much they've grown this season under Gattuso, and it's something that Lorenzo Insigne said, which is a case of Napoli is a team that needs constant motivation. It needs to kick up the, you know, and basically that's not something we're going to get from Ancelotti because Ancelotti expects you to come in and already be a professional because he's worked with so many of them before. He doesn't need to sit around and ask Gattuso and Pirlo to really, you know, ra rave themselves up for something or Ronaldo or Ramos. So he's already worked with people that are so professional that he finds it sometimes hard to push teams on when he needs to be the spark that lights them up in a, in a game. And I think this is why he comes across a lot of bad attitudes like the one that he was talking about yesterday. Because I feel like the way that his career has gone, that part of his development hasn't really been necessary because of the teams that he's worked with. So on a tactical level, he'll always manage to bring out the best. He'll know how to pick out players. I just don't know whether on a small team he can get them geared up to play all these games that they might not find very important. But, but again, a bit like Crystal Palace are now, I think, again, it's very difficult to draw conclusions I mean, absolutely because they they've re, they've restarted in a situation where they've got nothing to play for they've they've restarted you know some, some of these clubs have restarted the season with no europe to play for no relegation to play against yeah but southampton no haven't had anything to play for you know like Southampton South, South have done magnificently yeah I, yeah I totally accept that but i'm also just saying i think making any big judgments on those kind of clubs at the moment is dangerous just because They've, got, it's, they've it's literally got nothing situation. to play for. There'll be a load of that squad who know that the manager moving forwards wants to look at someone else. There's no fans to sort of put that artificial pressure on them. Look, I'm not huh. trying to make excuses for them. They've been dreadful the last few weeks, but I, I just I wouldn't be drawing too many conclusions on 
No, and you're right. Ancelotti. You're right. You're right. It's too early to make conclusions, but this is my fear only from watching what Napoli, what happened there. Yeah, yeah, no, no. The that. comments being made by some of their players, and I was like, oh, this could be an issue going forward. We've got more than half an hour into today's episode without mentioning either of the top two. Man City swept away Brighton. Pep Guardiola keeping his players motivated uh, with nothing to play for uh, except a guaranteed spot in the Champions League now, of course. Uh, And what about Burnley, JJ? A draw for them at Liverpool. Nick Pope, absolutely superb. Should he be England's number one? Yes, absolutely. Yeah. Yes. We've seen that for a while. Yeah. uh, Jordan Pickford uh, hasn't been very good for a while. (laughs) Uh, I don't know what's happened to him. He's still young, that's the thing. So there's every chance he comes good, but it seems to be that he was. I don't know what the difference is in him. He just is a bit wild now. Maybe he always was. Yeah, Nick Pope, great, uh, great goalkeeper, good shot stopper, but he's excellent at taking stuff out of the air. I've been really impressed with Burnley um, th- this season. Sean Dice, I really think if he had a job at a bigger club, he'd do something special with them. Like, you can see the way they play. Like, they don't just sit deep and uh, invite pressure, like, they push quite high. And they they adapt during games. Like the, the way they manage games is really clever. And the players have got like like players like Brownhill, who was playing for Bristol City, I think, this season, and he's come in and he's doing okay. I don't think he's that good a player, but it works really well in this Burnley team. And they, yeah, Dice had money or just time, and like, he was given any sort of chance at a higher club. I really, really, really think he'd be quite special because he's done the similar thing to what Klopp did at Liverpool, where you bring in the right characters, and he seems to know how to do that. And that's a sign of a good manager, I think. Like Leicester, if you took on Leicester, maybe. I mean, uh, I mean, he would never get a job at somewhere like Chelsea or that. But I mean, he could be good for a rebuild somewhere. Like he would have been a good Everton manager as well, if not Ancelotti. You know, same sort of problem. But problem with, he's got a problem with Burnley now, where he's definitely hit his ceiling, and they don't have the cash to really put in to do anything. And some of the players that he's uh, um, managed to turn into to top 10 Premier League players is like how you, not everyone does that <laughs> yeah no he's done a great job I, I watched them at West Ham when they beat West Ham in the week and they were they were excellent they were so organised and Pope Pope's brilliant Pope's really really good at the moment he's the form form goalkeeper the only the only thing is with the whole England thing is that Southgate does very much go by the, the fact that he if, if, a, if a player has performed for him and not not done anything almost to lose his place for England in terms of playing for England. He's pretty loyal to them. And even while, while England was still sort of playing before all of this shutdown and restart, um, even while Pickford was having a, a, a dodgy time at Everton, he was actually still performing well for England. Um, he was performing better for England than he was for Everton. And I think that in Southgate's team will keep you in the team for a bit. It won't keep you in the team forever, but it will keep you, it'll give you a chance of keeping your place in the team. But I, I agree, I'd, I'd have Pope, Pope over Pickford. Just a quick word on uh, the heroic Jack Charlton, who died at 85 over the weekend. Um, Really unusual in that he was equally beloved by English fans for winning the World Cup and Irish football fans as well for his work with the national team between 88 and 94. Um, What are your memories of Jack Charlton, Matt Law? (laughs) It's just that that the the USA squad, really, the USA-Irish squad, I mean, mainly because England weren't at that that tournament, that World Cup, and so I, I think, like a lot of other kids at, at that stage, I ended up just supporting Ireland for that tournament, and um, and they felt like an English team. You know, they had English players. There were a lot of actually Villa players: Steve Staunton, Ray Houghton, Paul McGrath were always um, mainstays of the, of the Jack Charlton teams, and 
it was just they were just good you, you felt like it was good fun yeah um we've complained we've complained with england for so long up until this southgate reign that it never looked like england players were having too much fun or it was very enjoyable Ireland were never good to watch under Jack Charlton. They're a long ball team. You know, they had Niall Quinn up front and it was whack it long. But they always looked like they were having good fun. They, it would, they looked to be enjoyable to be around. And, I mean, he, he did, in a way, revolutionise how a lot of those nations get their players. Because I think, and I wait for someone to prove me horribly wrong on this, but I think he was really at the, at the forefront of of picking up these players with Irish grandmothers, grandfathers, an auntie and uncle, Tony Cascarino, who later admitted he should have never have played for Ireland because he wasn't actually qualified to play for them. But he 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 sort of massively revolutionised, yeah, of how of how some of these nations can pick up their players and make themselves competitive. Um, before because before him and before that time, I only you know it was it was quite an odd thing to to hear of anyone playing for a national team just through a grandma or a grandpa or an auntie or an uncle. You know, Ray Houghton is Glaswegian, I think, Scottish, but has got obviously Irish ancestry. He was he was a mainstay. Yeah, it's just good fun. And he always seemed, I'd, I'd never met, you know, he was long before my time professionally writing on football, but just seemed like the, the most lovely of guys and funny of guys and warm, warm guy. He had such a lovely smile. Um, exactly, yeah. I guess I remember like one of the things was in 19, was it 1990 where they were set to face Italy in the quarterfinals and like they had basically all gone out and had a pint and that was like how they were preparing for the game or something. Um, and the fact is, is that he beat Eddie Gosaki's, you know, the great philosopher of, you know, wonderful football. I love that it got beaten by a route one, you know, pragmatist. Um, I always love these kind of stories and that's that's sort of how I remember him is just you know the he would scare Italians because you'll be like oh we don't know against them you know whether we're going to manage it no matter how far ahead they supposedly were tactically they obviously lost to them in 94 and there was something about Jack Charlton he just always looked so happy on the sidelines yep yep he'll certainly be very missed let's have a little bit of music and a song for Europe Mina, Juve, lucky, I thought, to draw against Atalanta at the weekend. I, it's so funny because, like, you know, obviously there's so much football going around, but really, honestly, there's just been so many fantastic games in Serie A. And I know, like, I don't feel like anyone really believes it, but I have to keep <laughs> reminding them because, like, if you watched Milan-Juve, that was the game of the entire season. It was the most fascinating match um, and also, if you just look on YouTube with the amount of views, it's more than anything you can imagine. This was another fantastic game because obviously it's Atalanta. And I'm starting to think Atalanta can actually win the Champions League. Um, they just decide that, firstly, have always been fantastic because of their front three from Duvan Zapata, Papu Gomez, and of course, Ilicic. But they're also a side now that have something to prove on a psychological level. I told you before, Bergamo was the epicenter of the coronavirus pandemic and they lost a lot of people there. And it's almost like they're playing for them. They're playing out of their skin. They're trying to do everything they can to win every game they can to give something back to their city. 
And they were fantastic again against Juventus, as we all imagined they would be. Many people thought Juventus would lose this because obviously they're so stubborn when it comes to their style of play under Maurizio Sarri and they're not very unpredictable. You know how they try to play their football. Um, but they did have Dybala back, who, who they didn't have against Milan, and they had Dilich back at the back at the uh, in the defense. But they were just Atalanta was once again a side that always is so unpredictable. They know how to score goals. But what I also think is so interesting is that they're also learning how to defend a little better in their in their last few matches. And they understand how to neutralize threats. So this is why I'm starting to think that they might do something special against PSG in the Champions League. We'll see. Yeah, it's quite an exciting idea. What about Lazio? Have they, have they dropped off a little bit now, Mina? They look oh, like they're going to really challenge for the title at one point. I mean, Lazio mouth off a lot because of, you know, their directors and president. And, they, you know, they're a team that constantly was talking, oh, wait, we cannot believe the likes of Juventus have let their players go home during coronavirus. We all stayed behind. We're all training extra hard. I think that what Lazio are is victims of the fact that they actually have a small squad. Um, so sometimes, you know, obviously it works out, works out for a team like Wolves. But when you are challenging for the Scudetto, and there aren't teams around that really fall over like they used to um, in Italy. So you've got the bottom ones, the relegation battlers are all willing to give you a game like Lecce and try to score as many goals as possible. And they lost against them, for example. Um, Spal, for example, defeated Atalanta. Um, so what they're finding is that unless they're playing with their men in constant amazing positions like Immobile, Alberto, um, Caicedo and, and uh, Milinkovic-Savage, unless they have a fully strong team out there playing football that they just don't know how to get one together and then they can't do as well with you know with rotations and and changing around there's been so many suspensions so many injuries and I think on a psychological level there's a part of them that's just given up they were aside for the comeback they were always known to be the comeback team so they'll lose like the first half and then just be astonishingly good in the second but when you've lost yourself a bit and you're just feeling like, oh, we're not going to catch Juventus anymore, there is going to be a, a, a reaction to that. Um, and I'm, I'm sad that we're going to see that. So maybe Atalanta will face, or, or Inter actually, could um, end up in second. That'll be fun. What about in Spain? Mina, Barcelona continuing to limp through the season a little bit. Uh, they scraped past Valladolid at the weekend. Do you see Setien staying much longer there? Oh, I don't think so. I mean, this is the weird thing with Barcelona, right? Because you saw them against Villarreal and you thought, this is an astonishingly good performance. Like, this was so good. It was like back to Barcelona because they've been so boring under Valverde. <clears throat> so boring against Setien. And a lot of it is because they're sort of used to the style of play. So when Setien came in and tried to introduce his ideas, they weren't buying it. And so they had to revert to like the way that they were playing under Valverde, which is a little bit boring. Um, and then... You saw them against Villarreal in the sense that Messi was played as sort of as trequartista, which is the man in the hole, be behind Antoine Griezmann and Luis Suarez. And finally, Griezmann had found his place on the pitch, somewhere he was happy to play in, somewhere where he could offer the full and best version of himself rather than sort of being, you know, shoved into whatever space there was free on the pitch. And they played fantastic football. And you thought, wait, hold on a second, maybe this could work. Um, unfortunately, 
They were terrible against Valladolid. Messi wasn't at his best. Griezmann was injured and taken off at halftime. And now he's unavailable for the rest of the season. So there's things like that that are also not working in Setien's favour. But his football is boring. I think even he was surprised that he got the job. And he said that several times. Like, I never thought that I was going to be here. This is a little bit of a bridge too far for a coach like him. Um, They could decide to get rid of him um, to prepare for the Champions League. I don't know what's going to happen because it's one more year left for Bartomeu, the president. And then after that, Barcelona hopefully should be under good new management. And that's when they'll get, you know, Xavi and whatever. But as for Setiena, it's like, I'm not even sure who they're going to bring in as a, you know, who's the, who, who's they're going to bring in this summer. So, or before Champions League. So it's almost like they have to stick with it. But you, when you see how the players deal with him, how often they seem to ignore him, you wonder whether they have any respect for him at all sometimes. Get Sean Dyche in there. That's my verdict for <laughs> Barcelona. Uh, finally, just three games left now in the Premier League uh, for almost every team. Villa and Bournemouth are the teams looking to miraculously survive, despite Matt Law's predictions of doom earlier in the episode. Uh, We're asking, what is the greatest, great escape? And uh, we had three nominations from our friends on social media, which we've uh, picked out. But uh, let's see first if uh, if you've matched any of those, JJ. Um, No. Because mine is a, I was looking for something that would be in the Premier League or something like that. But the one I always remember being really funny at the time was when um, Aberdeen were, it's predictable, Aberdeen were bottom of the of the then SPL. Uh, awful. The worst season I've ever seen Aberdeen play. Like, like hilariously bad. Didn't score a goal for something like eight games in a row or something like that. Anyway, finished bottom. And uh, the reason they weren't relegated is because the league was then decided to be expanded to more teams and the team that would have played them in the playoff uh, their stadium wasn't big enough, so <laughs> they no. just promoted. They just promoted Dunfermline as a as a runner up, and Aberdeen uh, lived on. Oh my what? god, that was funny. I bet Falkirk loved that one. Yeah. <laughs> what about you, Matt? Uh, West Brom under Brian Robson. Do you remember that one? We do. Yeah. So does May on social media. That was their nomination. Woo-hoo, yeah, you got I mean, a match. I think they they started with Gary Megson, and they were just like so far behind you know at Christmas I think they had 10 points uh they they were miles off it with 10 games to go they were absolutely dead um and then they just went on this incredible run and uh I think it's the didn't they become the first first Premier League club who were bottom at Christmas to actually survive I think that they were the the breaker of that stat which had been been a long one um so yeah I, I remember that it's uh Despite the, the supposed rivalry between West Brom and Villa, I, was, I remember being quite pleased with them. I enjoyed that. Go on then, Mina. What's your, what's your final uh, verdict for Greatest Great Escape? Uh, well, Liverpool helped with uh, the, the uh, sort of deciding who got relegated in 2007 in Serie A because the last game of the season was between Regina and Milan. And Regina had started the season minus 11 points because of the Calciopoli scandal. And so that was their punishment. So they were favourites to be relegated. And they now had to face the, face the mighty Milan that had just played Liverpool and won. So had decided to rest many of their players, Ancelotti. 
um, was the manager. And so because he rested so many, Regina actually won the game 2-0, pulled off the impossible and managed to escape relegation under Walter Mazzari. So that was a great story because at the time they kept saying thank you to Liverpool for having played them and exhausted them so no players could play and we could win this match. Well, you'll be shocked to learn that neither of the other two comments we picked from social media were about Regina or Walter Mazzari, <laughs> which is a name I've already <laughs> forgotten despite uh, only uh, learning it about a year ago. Um, Matt says, how can you look beyond Leicester City 2015? Well, we've done it, I'm afraid, Matt. And Charlie says, succinctly, Fulham 0708. Well done, Charlie. Thanks very much. That's your lot for this week. You can contact me on Twitter before next week's episode. If you'd like to, it's at Tom with an H Gibbs. Send us an email too, if that's the sort of thing you enjoy. And let's face it, who doesn't? AFC podcast at telegraph.co.uk is the address you'll need and we'll read out the very best of what you send us. Don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. Look for Telegraph Audio Football Club wherever you get your podcasts. Probably the internet. Thanks to Joel Grove on the buttons and thanks to you for your company. I'll talk to you again soon. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.